Hey, everybody. Before we start the episode, we just want to let you know that we discussed some kind of heavy topics in this episode, um, including images of child endangerment and animal cruelty. Um, If that's not your comfort area, you might want to pick a different episode. But we also have an important announcement at the beginning before we start discussing the movie that you might want to hear before you go into the back catalog and pick another favorite. It's probably going to be the Dungeons and Dragons movie, right? Anyways, on to the episode. Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm here with my creepy co-hosts. My name's Cassidy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a spooky spider monster that is actually pretty nice once you get to know me. Oh, that's great. Most people just don't bother to try to talk to me, you know? Well, that's just mean. And I don't even get treats like the Duke did. Some tasty worms? Like, nobody even thinks of me that way. Somebody ought to take care of you. I know, right? Some flies. I, that's all I'm asking. You get no regard. Yeah, no, no regard sorry, at no all. No regard, yeah. <laughs> Well, dang, that's pretty tough. But you? But me. <laughs> but you? I'm Jack <laughs> Olander. My pronouns are she, her, and uh, I'm actually uh, Wallaby Jack. Oh, wow. Oh. Interesting. What yes. is that like? Uh, Well, everyone is like, are you? Are you the kangaroo Jack? No. No. No, but, we, uh, you know, we're Australian, so I guess there's that, but no, I mean, no relation, something. no relation. That's where the connection ends. Yeah. <laughs> One of the least deadly things in Australia, right? Yes. <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> Once they get a little adrenaline in them, though, right? You like kind of like kangaroos where you like to fight or not? Well, we're sort of like a lot of things in Australia. We are just like right on the verge of evolving venom. Ah, that's fair. You know, it's the venom biome. We're almost as venomous as the people in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) It's the toxic bite that gets you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was just thinking about. But I think that's most humans. <laughs> that's why they fight with boomerangs, so they can't bite you uh, up close. Right, oh, okay. Right, right. But what do they want to bite you if they were trying to fight you? Well, you want to you want to keep them at a distance. I see. That makes sense. That's why we keep all the bacteria in our mouths. It's one of our powers. Exactly. Makes sense to me. We are trying to, to give komodo people infections. <laughs> yes, like a komodo dragon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm scared if I ever bite my own tongue now. 
Well, guys, we have a movie to talk about today. But before we do that, we actually have kind of a sad announcement. Oh, yes. It's This is a hard one. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, Swords and Satire podcast is going to be going away soon. Well, we realized it's time for us to end the project. It's been a lot of fun, and it's been a really hard decision to make. We've actually been wrestling with this in the background for months. Yeah, um, it's been increasingly difficult for us to keep up the show, kind of like keep the momentum going while our lives are kind of changing all behind the scenes and all of our time with new careers and such is being massively impacted and something had to break, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, so we just realized that our lives are just taking on new forms. We're all going down different paths and uh, we have new exciting projects we're all working on. And um, it is sad to end this one because we all love it so much. But I, I think in the end, it'll be for the best. Yeah, we've really enjoyed creating episodes and having a good time talking to all of you out there. And we appreciate all the support of everybody who's listened to the show, who's been part of the show. And and like Cass said, this has been a really hard decision, but it is the one that we need for our own mental and physical well-being. So we're still going to have a skit next week, and then we're going to have our final episode coming out after that. And we just wanted to let people know. But if you're thinking, whoa, these sick fucks, they're robbing me of my show. Well, though new episodes might not be coming out, we're going to attempt to move our episodes onto the YouTubes. The, That's true. You know, the video monopoly. <laughs> it's true. So you can have the whole archive there and listen to some of your favorites. And who knows, maybe someday there will be other exciting swords and satire projects down the line. But for now, the podcast is just not a tenable project for us to continue with. So we're sorry to all of our dedicated listeners, but we also know that you understand that this is what's best for us. And we really appreciate all the support you've given us over the years. Yeah, we we super appreciate all of our listeners and our patrons who have supported us on Patreon this whole time um, or for most of the life of our show, <laughs> as soon as we started it up, pretty much. And um, we just really appreciate that extra level of support that helped us keep the show going. That's right. If you've got a few extra bucks. No, 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 no. <laughs> Go send them to some of your other favorite <laughs> podcasters. Yes, okay, definitely. Yes, that. <laughs> Keep supporting the arts. Yeah. Art builds community. It's true. Well, now that we've uh, set the mood right, let's <laughs> talk about a movie that's an equal bummer. The Duke. The Duke. The Poopa Snoot. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that uh, our listeners don't get whiplash from this transition. And uh, The Badabook. As they say in the uh, What We Do in the Shadows show. That's right. The that's a different guy. The, the Badonkadonk? That's, yes. a, that's a very different thing. Yeah. Yes. But all right, let's get some of the technical details out of the way. The Babadook is a 2014 film directed by Jennifer Kent. 
It stars Essie Davis and Noah Wiseman. He's related to Superman. Because his name is Kent. Jennifer Kent is related to Superman? Yes. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought about it before, but that's a great point. Everyone named Kent is related to the Kryptonian. Okay. Kal-El. You came down to our planet. I've met someone named Kal-El. Kal-El? Not Kal-El, but oh. Kal-El. Nicholas like, Cage's... your name is Superman's <laughs> name. <laughs> Nicholas Cage's son is named Kal-El after Superman. That's all. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I hope that person learns to love that name. <laughs> I mean, that person is Nicholas Cage's son. That's pro- There's problems there. <laughs> oh, come on. We love ourselves Nick- some Nicholas Cage. Uh, you know, Nick but- seems like a lovely man. Yeah, but I'm sure the child of any celebrity has a hard time. Oh, yeah, that's a fair point. That's my point. That's fair. All right, but before we jump into talking about, like, all the amazing themes and ideas we've seen from the Babadook, Cass, why don't you uh, set us up for a nice summary here? Oh, shit. Right. Okay. Here we go. hard turns out and it news to me (laughs) news to those who have felt it it sticks with you and if you try to deny it you just become a monster just a terrible top hat wearing (laughs) spiky handed monster snazzy oh snazzy af you know sassy Mm -hmm. uh little too edgy like because of the Edged claws. And the knife. Yeah. But, you know. A flair for the dramatic. Yeah. True. And you may find that you, you it's easy to become possessed sometimes, but... Whoops. Uh, possessed or possessive? <laughs> Both. Uh, but if you just throw up some black goo, you'll be okay again. Yeah. I mean, you can't hide in the closet forever. But then you can hide your grief in the basement and just feed it and it'll be okay. Much healthier. Yeah. And that's the Babadook? Yeah. Okay. That uh, works. But just so we all are on the same page, we can like introduce some of the characters that were in the movie. The mom, who's like Mom the Monster, <laughs> is um, Amelia. But she's suffering too. Yeah, she is. She's a nurse in a like an old folks home, a nursing home. And uh, Samuel is her first grade son. He's in first grade. He's uh, about to turn seven, okay, and we yeah. find out over the course of the movie that his father died while driving Amelia to the hospital for Samuel's birth. Yes. And Samuel is fixated on this story and is deeply afraid that his mother is going to die as well. And unfortunately, Amelia seems to have a lot of lingering resentment aimed at her son, which is... Sad, but also, I mean, because his birth is associated with such a horrendous tragedy, yeah, I think we can kind of see how these seeds get planted. It's true. And um, they have a really nice next door neighbor who's just the sweetest, uh, Mrs. Roach. She's pretty great. Yeah. And uh, then 
the sister Claire who like can kind of seem like a hard ass, but is actually just like probably at the end of her rope and is trying to set boundaries for herself. Yeah, that's a tough one. Her sister is definitely experiencing a mental health crisis and Claire is just not equipped to deal with it. So we've got a lot of things to talk about there. She does keep telling them to get help, but they don't. Yeah, and that's not always the most supportive thing somebody can do. True. But, again, Claire is not a mental health professional, so she is in a tough spot as well. Yeah, I think she's in marketing or something. (sighs) Then she deserves whatever evils befall her. (laughs) And at a party, Samuel uses his ultimate ability on his cousin. The shove spell? Yes. Yeah. Knock back and fall damage. (laughs) Yeah. And also bleeding. (laughs) (laughs) The bleeding status effect. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. Oh, geez. Yeah. His poor cousin, um, who's being really awful at Samuel and being like, you don't have a dad because you suck. Yeah. She's being really emotionally abusive and he doesn't know how to deal with it or how to go get help because he's been kind of pushed away by his mom. And we can kind of see how that could be on Claire a bit because- like the her daughter is probably not just coming up with these things whole cloth, right? She is actively saying that she's repeating stuff she's heard her parents say. Yeah. So yeah. Tough situation all around. In the end, they keep the Babadook as a pet <laughs> in their basement. Let's not be so uh, you know, dismissive. He's a roommate. Okay. And uh, you know, they're all happy. Ish. In, in the end. Maybe. They're chilling. We'll talk about it. They're gardening. (laughs) Yeah, things are a lot chiller. That's for sure. But they kill the poor dog. I wasn't sure if we should say that or not. Okay, you can cut this part out. Well, the dog barked at her, and her ultimate ability was fully (laughs) charged. All right, we can cut the part about the dog murder. All right, well, I think those are the big ideas from the film. Why don't we head into the delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of the Baba Duke. Who goes Duke, Duke, Duke when he's knocking on your door three times to be let in. And Ba Ba Ba. Right. All right, guys. So here we are. It's Pride Month. You're all sitting here wondering why are we talking about the Baba Duke during Pride Month? Well, why are we? It's a fair question, right? Yeah, it is. If you don't know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) Whoa. Because did you guys know. That's a hot take. (laughs) Did you guys know that the Babadook is a gay icon? I do now. It was actually the clearest reading of the film. Okay, good. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So here's some backstory on how the Babadook became one of the gay icons of the 2010s. Yeah, I think this is a story worth rehashing. It probably is. Because the Babadook didn't become gay. You don't become gay. <laughs> right, exactly. We we recognized the gayness in the Babadook. <laughs> that is certainly one interpretation. <laughs> so, years ago, after the Babadook came out, some folks on Tumblr started a kind of line of jokey jokes about the Babadook being a gay icon. And as jokes on the internet sometimes do, 
This one took on a life of its own and actually began to resonate with some people. And as you start to look at the film, you can go like, okay, trauma monster who comes out of the closet, who can't be kept in, who has to hide who he is. What's underneath his facade is the real person is the real person who's much scarier, right, to society and than what you see externally. You can't keep him from coming out of the closet. And once he's out and you've, you know, acknowledge him, you can't actually make it go away. Right. And the more you try to suppress and subsume right. his existence, the more damage he can do. But if you learn to cope and accept and like, Maybe cope's not the word. If you learn to accept him, you can actually have a great relationship. That's right. The more you deny the gay, the gayer you get. (laughs) I think that might be how it works. Yeah. And also, we forgot to mention the fact that he just is a fabulous dresser. Yeah, it's true. And so, you know, a few whatever months or years later, I don't know the exact timeline, when the director, Jennifer Kent, was beginning to be asked about this. She was like, you know what? No, this is a fairly valid reading of my film. She said, I I didn't intend this, but it's wonderful. And I see it now. And I'm glad that it's there. (laughs) And like that can happen with a lot of media, right? I mean, there's a long, long history of queer coding of horror villains where the queer community begins to embrace some of the like supposed monsters of horror fantasy fiction. And then you kind of embrace the camp of that. (laughs) Yeah. And and like, I think that it's a totally, I mean, it's not my place to tell people what is valid for their own experiences, but like, I completely understand why some of these camp villains become so iconically embraced by the queer community. And the, the queer community is still, demonized by certain groups of people and then we get this real world example of this whole dynamic where we still have that issue and then somebody puts out there this image of pride month going down to a rainbow demon word (laughs) right yeah yeah pride Pride month Month. okay yeah yeah and then it becomes like a sensation in the queer community and people are like, I want to wear that T-shirt. And I just bought myself that T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's something really beautiful about how the queer community is so unflappable about so many of these things. I mean, even the term queer itself, right? That was a derogatory term that the queer community embraced and like took the harm out of and made it a self-expression. Yeah. And like, I think that's what happens a lot of times with these queer readings of horror movies. And like, this goes back to the beginning of horror fiction, right? With like the queer story in like Carmilla, Dracula. Then like years later, like James Whale, the director of the Frankenstein film from the 30s, was a gay man in Hollywood who was like blacklisted years later. But like this, this reading or this history goes deep. And then it kind of begins to appear in 80s films like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. And if you think about literature that a lot of these films are based on, a lot of people who were queer were the authors, like Bram Stoker. Yeah. Yeah. Or James Whale, the director of Frankenstein. Yeah. So you have queer creators associated with the genre and writing and creating. Yeah. Hold on a sec. 
You're telling me Bram Stoker, the person who wrote Dracula, was gay? Yes. And vampires, the gayest metaphor in monster (laughs) history, were popularized by a gay author? That's awesome. I I want to counter that assertion with a humorous, um, like, better gay monster. It is hard to come up with one. No, vampires are like the go-to queer monster. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back even farther than Stoker's work to Carmilla. Yeah, yeah. Which is an older story. Carmilla is older. Yeah. Woo, look at that. I can't help but think of the interview with the vampire series that I just was watching. It was like from 2020, I think. No, I think it's newer. I think it's 2022. Something like that. Oh, yeah. This is brand new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I won't say how in case somebody hasn't watched it, but like me. It is both. A sequel and a reboot of sorts. It's they're retelling the story, but it's also linked to the movie. Interesting. It's fascinating. You're telling me that Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt show up in the interview at the vampire (laughs) TV show? No. Oh. Spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh but it is quite gay, and I'm here for it. Um I was loving it, you know. I was like, Lestat can suck my blood any day. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's the problematic parts of it. But. Well, we dis- I'm assuming this is some of the same stuff we discussed in our episode on Interview with the Vampire, the film. Yeah. It's this pull to something darker that's within ourselves and this attraction to that. But it's also dangerous if left unchecked. And that trauma is not addressed. And that's, that's kind of like in the Babadook. That's fair. And also, I think that we've touched on one of you mentioned, like, kind of the campiness of a lot of horror, I think also has that very performative, theatric appeal to the queer community, right? There's a lot of expressiveness, there's a lot of like big performances that really resonate with audiences. And it's why I've always leaned a lot more towards the horror villains who have a personality who have like, like an expressive personality, like Freddy Krueger, right? Problematic as fuck, but a really fun character. Like Robert England's delivery of the character is so over the top and elevated that it's a, it becomes a blast to see. Yeah. And the Babadook, let's just say a lot of the Babadook's personality comes out from the books. It does. The book that the Babadook makes and distributes. It's so playful. It is very playful, (laughs) right? It's a children's book, which is haunting. With like pull tabs to make little pop-ups happen where he's like peeking through a door and then he like waves when you pull on the tab. And that is part of the queer reading too, this very performative horror, right? Like he's not just going to show up to haunt your house. He's like sending his little calling card first. (laughs) And then when... I made you this. When Amelia, yeah. yeah, and when Amelia like destroys the book, he re-edits it and like adds new messages. Yeah. And it's like that's that's over the top. That's, that's part, fun. That's part of the playfulness of it. He it's a communication between the two of them and it's like he's kind of being coy. He is being <laughs> a little or like 
cheeky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, the Babadook in the book has a cute little drawing of himself. Yes. Uh, where he's very, like very big, cute. <laughs> yeah, big grinny, big round eyes. The little top hat, trench coat, and yeah. like little spiky fingers. It's kind of cute. Uh, you should really look up gay Babadook art on <laughs> yes. YouTube. Yes. You have to. No, just on Google. <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> just look at the pictures. It's a lot of fun. And like you can really see why the queer community would embrace this character in these ways. Or like some people, obviously, like not to speak of the queer community as a monolith. Right. But like in the same way, Cass, you mentioned like the Pride Month demon shirt becoming yes. this like, no, we're actually kind of want to own that. Yeah. Right. Yes. Like we're we're cool with this. Yes. Probably the entire Pride community does not know about it. When I showed <laughs> up today and Cass and Jamie were like, oh, there is a gay Babadook reading. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, I'm sure if you went up to a random person at the Pride Parade and you're like, Babadook is gay, they'd be like, what the fuck? No, they'd be like, hell yeah. Hell of yeah. course he is. Of course, obviously. Water is wet. Yeah. <laughs> and so is he. Some sort of water <laughs> But so, okay, with all this in mind, we've talked about kind of the history of queer horror, which we've discussed before. Does this reading of the Babadook actually hold up? Like, we're having our fun, and, like, we're having a little bit of history, too. But do we actually see this as a valid interpretation? I'm with the director, the Kent. Jennifer Kent. <laughs> Jennifer Kent. Jennifer Kent. Related we can just call her Super Jen, I'm sure. I mean... <laughs> Super um, Jen. <laughs> Super Jen. <laughs> <laughs> what's, uh, what's Supergirl's name? Uh... Kara? Kara, right. Kara Kent. <laughs> yes. Uh that <laughs> the it makes sense because it's like the Babadook is in the closet. Yeah. He's hidden, right? But once He's wearing a mask. Once you know about him, you can't get rid of him. And he you cannot keep him from coming out of the closet. And if you try to Keep him in the closet. If, he will have destructive kind of Im he will lead to destructive impulses in yourself. Right. And he kind of lives within you. Right. And then has to emerge and, and be acknowledged and uh, be faced to to like defeat the dark side of it. Exactly. In order to embrace who you are. Once Amelia yeah. and. Samuel, well, especially Amelia, right? Like, Samuel is understandably afraid as a child who's living with a mother who is... I, I, Samuel's seeing the Babadook, and Amelia is denying it, and then we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but about halfway through the movie, it begins to flip, and we kind of get that Samuel's seeing something horrifying in, her, in his mother. Once Amelia comes to terms with this, they can live in harmony. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the path to getting there is disturbing. And I think that, yeah, the idea that it was intentionally a queer reading doesn't super track because it is very much about Amelia losing her husband. I don't know if it was intentional, but it ends up being a reading that is totally valid because exactly. all of the evidence is there. Exactly. <laughs> and we can subconsciously create art that expresses these things, right? Right. 
Like, my understanding of, like, Dracula is that Stoker was not trying to write a super queer romance vampire story, but that it kind of came out. Yeah. Pun intended. It's like the posts you see on social media that's like, tell me you're gay without saying I'm gay. Right. And the Babadook is just like, presents the little book about himself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that in a similar way, you know, we've talked about, I've mentioned up to this point, like um, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, which I believe even the actors are like, yeah, I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. Like with the the main character, whose name is escaping me right now, who's like the final boy of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, the kind of main character, the survivor. Gabriel. Gabriel's his name? Gabriel. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jamie did not hear <laughs> No I did and I was like Maybe maybe I'm just <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure The actor like I wasn't going for that But that was what was coming out Oh wow As a queer actor right Nice. Like, yeah. And it and it, it makes it so it's like Is the movie supposed to be read as super Homoerotic I don't know But there's like the shower scene, right? Where yeah. he's like, there's the like assault whipping in the each shower and, and, and the stuff. whipping and stuff. And it's like, there's a lot of queer overtones And there. then there's the scene where the monster comes out when he's alone with this other boy that he might have a crush on, you know? Right. And again, like, we can see problematic interpretations or, like, kind yeah. of the, the scary side of it. Like, oh, maybe maybe it was intentionally, like, a, squa- a, a squarey, a scary queer reading. But again, much like the Pride Month demon shirt, the queer community is like, no, actually, we're totally cool with like being the campy, dramatic performance of the quote unquote villain. Right. Rocky Horror Style. Rocky Horror Style is a wonderful example. Tim Curry, killing it. Yeah. Haven't seen it, but I saw a scene from it. Tim Curry, killing it. (laughs) I mean, admittedly, same. Yeah. But I like it's cultural osmosis that I know a lot about Rocky. Through. Yes. <laughs> Tim Curry in uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, this iconically campy, yes. very queer character, right, is mm-hmm. embraced by the queer community, even though his character is a bit well, the troubled part <laughs> of the or troubling goal of that movie was to make fun of a lot of the like PSAs of the time. Right. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. About, like, the dangers of sex and drugs and getting into relationships. And yeah, stuff. if you get into sex and drugs and rock and roll, you're going to be so sexy. Everyone's going to want to, like, <laughs> be with you. It's like, oh, oh, no. PSA is often um, did not do a good job of expressing their foundational message. Yeah. Or just people didn't want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> This is your mind on drugs makes a full English breakfast in a commercial. (laughs) (laughs) English breakfast. Beans on toast. (laughs) I don't like beans that much. A wet bread sandwich? I don't know. Water sandwich? (laughs) Jesus Christ. Look it up. It's a real thing. Jesus Christ. Vegemite LaCroix? (laughs) No. No. There's another one. (laughs) No, thank you. All right, so I think that we kind of have a consensus for us three, at least, that the queer reading of the Babadook is both unintentional and completely fitting. Yes. Yes. 
And there's the other reading that we've touched on, but we could delve deeper into, which is the the grief angle. Let's talk about it. One might say the main angle. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that probably the intended uh, messages is about how grief can hound you. You could try to stamp it down, keep it locked away, but you can't fully escape it in the end. And when our fear, we don't address our fears, our anxieties, the things that touch us, make us sad, they can get bigger and bigger and we can end up hurting ourselves and people around us. And that's what happens in the film. And like the Babadook, it, it grows in intensity. And like, it says like, if you don't let yourself feel it, yes, then you can't purge it or learn to live with it. So like she had to let the Babadook in, in order to feel all those difficult emotions so that she could eventually purge it by the end of the movie. And it's like they have the Babadook in the basement. It's like a symbol of how you can't ever really get rid of grief. Yeah. So that you can't ever get rid of the Babadook. It's always going to be lurking below the surface, but you can like learn to process it in a healthier way. You can learn to live with it. It was so fascinating in the end when they are kind of coping about living with the Babadook in their basement. That's fascinating. So they're in the garden and they've been gathering worms to feed the Babadook. Right. But it's the mom and the boy together. They've been at each other's throats, like fighting the whole film and having all these, this rocky relationship. From the, like one of the very first scenes, we see that Amelia doesn't like being hugged by her son. Yeah. Like they are distant. Like, one of the first shots of the movie is Samuel coming to, like, sleep in her bed because he's scared, and she pulls away from him, and they're on opposite sides of the bed. Yeah. Like, the most visual, the most clear visual metaphor imaginable. Yeah. And they've been through the ringer, uh, but by the end, like, they are doing this activity together, learning to cope with grief together about the loss of... Her husband, his father, he still feels it deeply, even though he never got to know him. And uh, that's Samuel, I mean. And so she goes to feed it. And at first it acts like it's going to attack her, like it might overpower her. Right. But then, it still has that instinct. Yeah. It rears up. But then it it stops before fully entering her again. And she looks afraid, but then she's comforting and shushing and like saying things like it'll be okay it'll be okay and like comforting this monster i was so i'm getting goosebumps i was so fascinated by that i've never seen that in anything else it's one of her few like motherly moments i know but it's like how you have to have self-care and nurture yourself when you're going through grief it's also one of the things that can help with panic attacks is oh. saying to yourself that you can handle it and not letting the anxieties spiral out of control. Because telling yourself that you can't handle it is going to convince you right. and your body that that is the truth. It's going to flood you with more adrenaline. The things we tell ourselves 
have an effect on us. <laughs> yeah. This is this is what I tell people who have convinced themselves of something like, oh well, I just can't like accomplish this thing. I'm like, you know what? You're right. As long as you say that. <laughs> as long as you say you can't do it, you will always prove yourself right. And maybe it won't turn out like you were picturing, but you're going to accomplish something. Yeah. And so her soothing the Babadook at the end made a lot of sense to me. Because by addressing the grief and saying, oh, you are manageable. Right. It becomes manageable. And to that point, when she goes back up, after it's accepted the tribute of the worms, <laughs> she she's kind of like wary of it, but then it feels safe enough to leave. Um, and she goes back outside. She and her son are smiling at each other. And Samuel asks, how was it today? Right. Or yes. How was he today? And um, she says, oh, it was fine. It was OK. And it's like. Quieter today. Yeah. Checking in on each other about how they're coping with this grief. Yeah. It's a pretty beautiful conclusion to a dark and kind of um, haunting film. So one of the points I was wanting to make is like, it's like that with grief. When you've felt this significant loss of somebody you're very close to, you don't ever get rid of it. You just figure out where to put it. And how to live with it. And it's it's not, it doesn't have to be kind of like this super dark thing thinking of it that way. It's more like you just learn how to carry yourself while still holding that grief. Yeah, totally. At the end, when they have addressed the Babadook, addressed the grief, their dynamic as mother and child significantly changes yeah definitely and that made me want to bring up the next theme yes of unreliable narration and subjective experience okay that's a great one yeah that's really interesting the way they show that in this movie and i thought that's one of the things that made it unique as well yes very interesting but first i have to pee (laughs) So in the first half of the movie, we are sort of getting the perspective from his mom's angle. Right. Amelia's angle. Yes, that's right. She is seen as raising Samuel, who is a very troubled kiddo. Yeah. Yeah. He's isolated or ostracized from the other kids. He's different. Yeah. They call him weird. He seems to be in the process of developing a phobia of death and nursing it. (laughs) Which makes sense, given the conditions of his birth. That's right. He manifests this by talking a lot about monsters, and he constructs weapons and booby traps throughout the house. Yes, which is troubling, of course. Yeah, and he's breaking windows... And he's very much upsetting his mom. He brings, like, a crossbow to school. Generally frowned upon. Interesting clues, even in this part of the story, though, because he keeps saying things to her like, I don't want you to go away. And at this part in the movie, it's kind of like, what does he mean? Right. Yeah, that's right. And so they're going to pull him out of regular classes with the other students 
and give him a personal aid. Which can lead to further ostracization. It's true. Complicated. And so she is so mad that they're not going to help her son. They keep calling him the boy that she just pulls him out of school systems altogether. Right. And she's so upset about her son's behavior that she has to call out of work. She gets out of work early one day and has to de-stress by just walking around the mall and, like, doing self-care, sort of, or more escapism, I'd say, from her life. Because going home to her son is just so, so much emotional labor. Yes, she's in a very difficult position as a single mother with basically zero support group, uh, support network. However, the person she thinks she has as a support, her sister is actually, like we said, she is out of her depth emotionally. And that results in her lashing out a lot Mm -hmm. at Emily? Amelia. Amelia. And a wedge keeps getting driven between them as it's pretty clear that... What is the sister's name? That Claire cannot stand being around Samuel to the point where eventually she just outright says that yeah i can't stand being around your son i mean yeah she is having a heated moment because samuel just broke her daughter's nose which like under again we we can see understandable reasons why people are maybe pulling away from amelia and samuel but it's not helping their situation at all no and that's right at the party uh Amelia is speaking with some of her sister's friends, and the friends bring up the trauma that Emily has been through. Right. And this is an interesting shot, too, where um, Amelia is sitting at a table, and Claire and her friends are kind of, like, looming around her like a council. Yeah. And, like, they, we get this very judgmental feeling, even if the friends are trying to be supportive. Supportive or helpful, they have no clue how to do it. They don't. People often don't know how to talk about grief. They're trying to be inclusive of her. They're not her friends. They're not Amelia's friends. They're Claire's friends. They're trying to be inclusive of Amelia and talk to her. And they just—they are blundering through it. But Amelia doesn't react very well. No, she lashes out at them. And so she... Emily is just Amelia. Amelia is just pushing away everyone in her life. She continually keeps calling out of work, saying like, "Yeah, just give my shifts away. You do what you have to." Right? Yeah, she's becoming very bitter and isolated. Exactly. Until it's just her and Samuel at this point, effectively. But she can't also stand being around Samuel, really, who is just obsessed with the Babadook ever since the book drops. It's all he's thinking about. Like, I need to protect you and me from the Babadook. Right. And he is being afflicted by it. He's talking to the Babadook when the mom can't see it. And he seizes at one point. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's screaming at her, just like wordlessly screeching. Yeah. And so she is pushed over the edge and she gets tranquilizers for him. From the doctor. From the doctor. To help them sleep. 
he can't sleep because of the his night terrors, and she can't sleep because she's comforting him. She's comforting him, and also like her own trauma and everything. It's like it making it so she can't cope, and it's a real thing, sleep deprivation. Um, but the doctor seems very wary about giving these tranquilizer series. Like moms usually aren't too keen on it unless it's really bad, and she's like, it's really bad. And so. She goes from being a really troubled mother at this point. Who seems harried by her whole situation. Yes. When she starts to give Samuel the tranquilizers, she absorbs the Babadook. Yes. Yeah. It goes inside of her at this point, and she begins changing to being cruel. She's hallucinating a lot. Seeing roaches in the walls. She took all the food out of the refrigerator. She, uh, at one point, basically social services comes to check up on the family, her and Samuel. Yeah. And she looks very out of sorts. Yes. The social services people are actually really nice and understanding. They're like, you know what? We can tell this is a bad time. We will come back. Because we are seeing somebody going through, like, a moment. Yes. And they don't know what to do. They were like, we'll be back in a week. (laughs) And at the end of the film, they are back and very supportive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A a little on edge because they're supposed to have, like, an inspector's eye. Yeah. But, yeah, the mom starts to become this cruel figure where she... And Samuel starts becoming just a concerned child from where he was a screeching, obsessive sort of clingy, clingy kid dealing with a lot and just being really demanding, unable to behave appropriately, high maintenance child. Now he is a child who is scared and just in a bad situation, but trying to help his mom. Yeah. And seems like his behavior is more well-adjusted than hers. And so once he starts taking the drugs, you get the feeling as the viewer that the perspective might have shifted. Exactly. For the second half of the film, the mom, Amelia, is snapping at Samuel. Samuel says, Mom, I'm hungry and there was no food in the fridge. I tried to make it myself, but, you know, you took all the food out of the fridge and she yells, why don't you just eat shit, right? (laughs) Yeah. and That's when we knew it was a sword and satire movie. Exactly. And so, and she keeps trying to comfort him, but at that point he knows what's up. Yeah, and he's pulling away. He no longer feels safe with his mother. Yeah, that's right. For good reason. He flinches away from her comforting touch. So, like, their behavior totally shifts and, like, she's now the one who can't cope and he's the one who's trying to help her. And you really get the sense that, like, you're feeling and experiencing things from Samuel's perspective. Yeah, he's just a scared little boy trying to take care of his mom. Yeah. And it's rough. He's like, yo, I told you the Babadook was a thing, you know, and you you didn't believe it. So I have to be the one to save you now. And they show this in really interesting ways with light and shadow throughout the movie. Um, Like once the mom goes through the shift, like she's talking to him and she's her face is just covered in darkness and you only see like some vague outline and it's it's very creepy yeah Yeah. and And you really feel this helpless fear of like 
being a child locked in a house with a, a parent who is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And Samuel in the night is calling the neighbor, Miss Roach, to ask if they can go sleep at her house. Because yeah. he thinks that maybe being in the house with the Babadook is what's doing it. Right. But the mom is like, hey, are you trying to make me look bad in front of the neighbors? Is right. this the only way I can keep you quiet and she gets out a knife and cuts the landline right yeah and she starts locking all the doors to the house and basically saying like nothing's getting in also with the implication that nothing's getting out yeah yeah and so she uses one of her abilities on the dog and it's yeah. a one hit combo and that's all we have to say yeah i I was, uh, I'll just say that I had big feelings and reactions in the to the movie in this moment. This was the worst moment of the film. I was screaming at the movie and saying things that I don't have to repeat here. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, poo-poo. This movie is poo-poo, you said. <laughs> so she uses a grapple on the dog. And at one point when she is... I think she's going to speak with Mrs. Roach. Samuel goes into the kitchen and sees the dog's uh, downed form. <laughs> he also tries to escape the house through the back door, which is like locked up and latched. Yeah. Yes. And so he knows that she is killing. She killed the dog. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, shit. Yes. And uh, he knows that the Babadook completely has her now and that he has to fight back and defend himself. And so she comes up to Samuel in the kitchen and is like kneeling in front of him, going to put her hand on his neck. Yes. Which when we saw in the Babadook book was was not good. No. Uh, We've seen the strength of her grapple ability already. And so he says... Sorry, mom. And he wounds her with the knife she was holding earlier. Stabs her in the thigh with a kitchen knife. Yeah. Yeah. That is a gnarly wound, by the way. Like later on, her entire thigh is covered in blood. She needs severe medical attention. A lot of major arteries are in the thigh. At the end of the movie, she has a limp from the event. And she mentions that she had stitches. Yeah. Um, But he like Samuel in during this fateful night. He's like running around and getting the weapons that he had constructed. Which yeah. end up saving his life. Yeah. He's like, you thought I was playing. I told you I've been preparing for this for weeks. <laughs> yeah. And he ends up down in the basement where all of the belongings that were her husband's are kept. Yes. Symbolism. And he's got some booby traps down there. That's right. And so the movie becomes Home Alone for a minute. (laughs) It's a real Batman versus Superman sort of scenario where like preparation time versus the supernatural being. And so he ends up getting her tied down. However, he sees part of his mom still in this possessed being. And so he gets too close and she frees herself starts using her grapple ability on him and he he soothes her mm-hmm. by yes. stroking her face 
saying it's going to be okay, right? The same way she soothes the Babadook later on. He takes on the parental role in this moment, and that seems to have a shock effect on his mother. In fact, that's what gets her to vomit up the icor that's inside of her. It's what it's the part of the Babagoo. Yeah, yeah, it's the part of the grief that's been festering inside of her. That's right. He took care of her then, and it allowed her to start purging the grief and the torment. Something interesting we haven't mentioned is during this half of the film, we see the Babadook in sometimes in the guise that it shows in the children's book, but also it takes on the form of her late husband. Yes. Which is interesting. Yeah. That's another clue about the whole grief angle and how the the monster is an embodiment of this trauma that she went through that she's not dealing with. That's right. But after it's all said and done, the Babadook is in their basement. They're taking care of it. He says, when am I going to be able to see it? And she says, when you're bigger. Oh, yeah. Which is like. You don't exactly know what the grief of loss is now, but you will when you're older, right? And it's kind of an acknowledgement that nobody can escape it. Well, and also that, like, sometimes as a child, like, you are experiencing these things that are going to have a lasting impact on you. You can't see them yet. You can't see the impact yet. You don't know at that age how you're going to feel about these things later on. And how these things are going to come back in interesting ways, like traumatic experiences. But someday he will be able to recognize them. And if he approaches them in a healthy way through a good relationship with his mother and the people around him, he might be able to see them in a way that is not crippling to him. And it's also an acknowledgement that loss and trauma and grief are a normal part of life. And how everybody is going to experience those at some point. Yeah, it's true. But it does appear that both halves of the film did play out. Yeah. Did happen the way that we saw it. Because we see the dog, the dog's body, as fertilizer for her new roses in the, like, rosy end scenes that we see that are, like, Dark, blood red, black roses. Yeah, still a dark undercurrent, even in the more uplifting ending. Yeah. The happier ending. Yeah. They feed the Babadook. The dog is helping these morbid (laughs) roses grow. And then uh, Child Services comes back. But like we said, things are different. Samuel was sitting on his mom's lap out in the garden. They were smiling together. Yeah. And then when they're talking to child services, he is Samuel is just speaking really bluntly. Yeah. About like, oh, my dad died went on our drive to the hospital where I was gonna be born. And his mom says with like endearment, like he just says things how they are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She's accepting him for who he is. That's right. Other people said that about him. I think Miss Roach said that yeah. about him. Someone yes. who loves them both very much. And now she, she, the mom, can say it right, about her own kid. That has been part of her journey. And then he also, Samuel also says, like, I broke my cousin's nose in two places. And the mom is just like, it happened. Yeah. yeah. So, like, she did kill the dog. The evidence is there. 
he did push his cousin and hurt her. Right. That's still canonical. We're not seeing like um, unreliable narrator type visions. Although Amelia has a few of those where like she sees like visions of Samuel being injured, but they're not true. Yeah. And so we get a perspective from Amelia in the first half, a perspective from Samuel in the second half. And then at the end, they both have a perception of each other as love. They love each other at the end. Yeah. And the message is like love and community can help you work through your grief. I really hope everything works out for those two. That's yeah. right. It's like I said, you can either go to therapy or deal with a Babadook possession for like a week tops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's so much less time and money to just like survive the Babadook. That's right. right. Stitches, though. Yeah. And less pet. Oh, that's a fair point. Yeah. yeah. Well, guys, before we wrap up, I've got one more question for you. What is it? Is the Babadook art? That's a good question, Jamie. I try. Let's explore the interesting things about this film that are artistic and creative. There is the storytelling style that we've been discussing where you shift perspective between characters and see the situation from different points of view. And it is simulating how like one dynamic or situation might seem to the different people involved. Right. And it helps you have empathy for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I think this movie is really good at, Appealing to our pathos, our uh, emotional sense. I think we can, a lot of us can see mirrors of our own life in the experiences of Samuel and Amelia, maybe even in the experiences of characters like Claire or Mrs. Roach. If we're, if we know somebody who's going through a difficult situation that we haven't been through personally, I think we see these characters who are trying to grapple with their loved one's challenges. And it's really good at like kind of, personifying this to us through film. There's the whole childlike dynamic of the Babadook. Yes. It comes from a children's book. It's this creative thing the mom probably made and like might have forgotten making. Well, you should explain why that is our theory about this. She used to write children's books. Yes, we find that out from her sister Claire, I believe. Yes. And she stopped writing after her husband passed. Or did she write one more book after her husband passed that was the Babadook book, the Baba book? (laughs) (laughs) She has to have been the one that wrote it and created it. And it's just there. It looks very handmade. And that would mean that she's the one who reconstructed it and then wrote new pages and put it on their doorstep because... When she's looking through the Babadook the first time, there are extra blank pages that aren't filled in. Right. And those are filled in when she gets it back. Well, the Babadook is inspiring her to write them right, through right. his influence. Yeah. Um, I think this is obviously something she created. And it might have been a way for her to understand her own grief, kind of talking to her own inner child. Could be. 
which is something that's useful to do in therapy. <laughs> and actually, um, Samuel had gone through therapy in the past, but had stopped. Mm. And it seemed like he was getting worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this kid has some some issues that are, you know, not being addressed in a sufficiently supportive way, right? And like we've got our commentary on modern mental health care services in this film, which is like there's usually not enough support for people who are experiencing issues like this. It's true. Um and I think that the Babadook is part of like somebody's creative interpretation of a children's nursery rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole thing is like a rhyming poem. And the first time you read it, it seems to stop on a line that doesn't rhyme until she finishes it. Right. <laughs> Which is my interpretation of what happens. But like until they get the rest of the book, then it continues with the rhyming scheme. Or the Babadook finishes it yeah. with her hand. Right. <laughs> and it's just really interesting. We were kind of in love with the aesthetics of the book oh i want my own copy yeah i bet you people have recreated it absolutely it was very striking and evocative it's written like a children's nursery rhyme but anybody of any age can feel the impact of the delivery <laughs> yeah it's spooky <laughs> and in addition to that I think the things that I remembered from seeing this film originally eight or nine years ago were the perspective switch halfway through. I had a probably way less keen eye when watching and analyzing films back in the day. And so I think it was pretty expertly done to have the perspective switch because it it isn't that blatant. It's a little more subtle. It is. But... That stuck with me for years as one of the things that the Babadook did really well is you're like, oh, I hate this kid. The kid is a child and unpleasant. <laughs> Listen, the child is unpleasant and has generally bad vibes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the mom is just really struggling to raise this basically horrible child until halfway through the film. You're like, wow, this kid is so like precious and we have to preserve yeah. him from this horrible mother that he has it's like wait a minute what happened yeah so that was really interesting and it happens in a really subtle way that's very cool and then the other part that i really stuck with me of course the ending they live with the babadook it isn't like oh sometimes there's like a hint that it's still there. It's like, no, it no, it's is there. Yeah. in the basement. Like, we <laughs> yeah. are taking care of him. He is a member of the family now. It is the demon in the basement. And yeah, and they, like, they make a, basically a bonding exercise out of feeding it. Mom's working in the garden. Hey, you collect the worms for the Babadook. Yeah. Worms, Samuel. And that was so <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. That, like, they have a generally positive relationship with the demon from the film. It's like, wait, I've never seen that. That's so unique. Something else that's interesting in the storytelling style is, besides what we mentioned where the Babadook takes on the guise of her late husband sometimes, also when she's defeating it and telling it that it has no power, um, it tries to scare her one last time. 
and it shines a bright light on her face like what she saw when they were having a car accident and the truck was running into them. Right, like it's trying to make her relive that moment yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. And she's able to confront that without the abject terror that she's been facing for years with that memory. Yeah, and it's Because the of- film opens with that, like, kind of her memory or dream or nightmare yeah. Yeah. of being in this car wreck. Yeah, and it's kind of like how you can have moments that flare up of grief. Right. Yeah. And like through your memories. Uh, so it was very poignant. <laughs> well, it was pretty clear that because of the unchecked grief, she really did not know what she was living for. She was just sort of like living this gray, colorless existence. Yeah. And at the end is when we get the most color in the film. Even though it's slightly muted, it is still the most colorful. Yes. And because every scene pretty much is like black and white yeah. almost throughout the film. Gray and brown and Very muted. muted. And then at the end, there are like pastels. Yeah. Yeah. It's striking. Yeah. And I think a huge signifier is when Samuel is stroking her cheek when she's going to kill him. And saying, like, it'll be okay, Mom. It's all right. She feels that tenderness. And it's the love for Samuel that basically she finds a will to live through that. And when the Babadook is scaring them by, like, revealing its true form, she says, like, I'm not going to let you hurt my son. Right. Yeah, she says, if you ever touch my son again, I'll fucking kill you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which was an awesome line. Babadook's like, okay, all right, I see that you're upset here. (laughs) And so... It's like her instinct to protect her child suddenly comes to life. Exactly. And so she went from just, like, hollow existence of unchecked trauma to like we faced it as bad as it got the babadook showed her husband dying again made her relive the moment and now she and samuel are close and they're making a life for themselves and that's great so that's art i think i think so i would agree i think that this movie does a lot of interesting things in pretty unique ways it expresses its themes and its messages pretty well. Um, And at the end of the day, it tells a a really compelling human story that I think a lot of people can relate to and maybe find some catharsis for their own experiences in. And what is art, if not a way for us to express human emotions and to feel them in a way that cannot be replicated by say machine learning. Yeah. It's true. Well, we just want to mention one more time that the Swords and Satire podcast is going to be coming to its logical conclusion in the next couple of weeks here. But we hope that you'll join us for our last episode in about two weeks when we will be revisiting our very first film, Conan the Barbarian, the first movie we ever talked about on our podcast. Yes, in our neonate form as a podcast we were stumbling through our analysis and now that we are fully formed butterflies we can give the film its due yes we have reached our final evolution except we're probably going to do some other stuff too (laughs) yeah we're talking about some side projects that may or may not come to fruition but we'll let you know in the coming weeks 
Yeah, we're talking about some possible other forms we might share our thoughts with people, but we'll let that germinate a little bit and we'll talk about it on the next episode. That's right. We're going to burn that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> exactly. But hey, if you like our show, even though we're going to be wrapping it up, you can always reach out to your other favorite artists and support them, such as on Patreon.com. That's right. It is a great motivator for independent creators to see that the fans are giving a little bit extra to show that they care about the work that artists are producing. So for a small channel like us, from our experience, it has been a big motivator and something that your artists that you support will really appreciate. And that passion is reflected in the art that they put out, the art that you love. That's right. I second that. And, you know, tell tell people about your favorite podcasts. Yeah. Even if you don't have a few extra bucks to send toward the channel, telling people about your favorite artists can help you enjoy it more when your community enjoys it with you. Word of mouth is the best advertisement. That's right. All right, guys. Well, until next time, Hail, Hail Crom! Crom!